Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I have a guest on the show and I'm speaking to Marcus Kane, who is a nutrition coach and trainer with 15 years industry experience and he specialises in working with people to break cycles of disordered eating and burnout. Marcus has a history of suffering with eating disorders, disordered eating and overexercise for around 15 years. However, he has healed his relationship with food and now supports others to do the same. From his experience balancing life as a fitness professional and touring performer, Marcus understands the impact high stress and pressure can have on the body and mind. And using strategies that focus on balancing the nervous system and providing safe ways to be with and recharge the body, Marcus provides a platform for people to gain a fulfilling relationship with food and exercise. Marcus also has a podcast, the M.Kane Coaching Podcast. Through his podcast episodes, it's Marcus's goal to clear up misleading information surrounding diets, optimal nutrition and training, and provide insights and support around forming an easy dynamic with food and moving out of dysfunctional eating patterns, and to give transparency surrounding the culture of performance-enhancing drug use in Hollywood and the fitness industry. I'm really looking forward to speaking with Marcus today to hear his story and healing, exploring more about men with eating disorders and the specific issues relevant around disordered eating in the fitness space. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Marcus, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Harriet. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Oh, fantastic. And Marcus, are you ready for Christmas as we're recording this early in early <laughs> well, December? <laughs> ready for Christmas. I don't know if anyone is ever really ready for Christmas, <laughs> but I've done better than previous years. I'm more organized than I have been, maybe. <laughs> oh, sure. Well, good for you. Well, we've literally, we've got our advent calendars and we have put the tree up, but that is it. <laughs> All right. So lots more to do at this end. <laughs> cool. So, Marcus, could you just say a little bit more about what you do, please, in your role? And yeah, just to hear a bit more about that. So, yeah, essentially, I support people who are working to recover from disordered eating, whether that be binge eating disorder or bulimia, those two in particular, because those two I have a lot of personal experience with. There was a few different let's call them recovery routes that I tried while I was struggling that didn't really work out that well for me and not having any support kind of within the fitness industry from anyone who kind of had one foot in the fitness industry and one foot in the disordered eating awareness kind of arena. I really could have used someone like that maybe Mm -hmm. five, 10, 15 years ago. So I'm doing my absolute best to become that person now and kind of be the resource that I wish that I'd had. Mm. No, that's wonderful to hear. And Marcus, perhaps we can just pick up really early on, actually, even before we hear a bit more about your story, 
But you said that perhaps you didn't really find the support that you were looking for when you were in your healing journey. And can you sort of say a bit more about kind of what you tried and then perhaps, you know, then what ultimately what you did find was helpful? For sure. My first experience of an attempt at improving my relationship with food came through a psychologist that my mum sent me to at the time because I was still a teenager. I was quite young. And my experience there was he was a lovely guy and I'm sure he was doing his best, but he clearly had no clue about what it was like to experience an eating disorder. And he didn't really seem to have any particular method or structure or anything in place for for dealing with someone, helping someone, supporting someone, dealing with those challenges. So he was doing his best for sure. And no doubt he was sticking to some kind of clinical guidelines, but he was just missing the mark time and time again when it came to trying to guide me out of that situation. And then that essentially felt so awkward and I felt so misunderstood at the time. Well, of course, being a teenager, everything was so much more dramatic. I'm like, oh, no one understands me. But, you know, like... I just felt so like, oh, that wasn't a very good experience. So I just pushed away from getting that kind of help, I guess. So that was that was my first experience of looking for help and what I was kind of met with. And there was a second part to that question. Can you remind me what that was? Yeah, no, I was ultimately wanting to ask you what was more helpful. But can I just ask you another yeah. question, actually, first? For sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we'll come on to that. And but with the psychologist then as well, was that just more perhaps a general, you know, talking therapy rather than being able to focus on specific tools and strategies to help you overcome disordered eating? Of course, 100%. And this is something that I've mentioned before in podcasts and, and content. Definitely the whole talking therapy approach is something that I tried several times over the years just because I didn't know that there were alternatives my whole idea of therapy and what I thought therapy and and help with mental health was, was talking. I thought that, you know, we go to a therapist, we go to a psychologist, we talk, we figure things out, we go home. And after a certain period of time, everything's okay. But yeah, it was definitely just that kind of talking approach, just talking about things week after week after week and finding that when the rubber met the road, nothing would really change. Mm-hmm. Sure. So you gained like perhaps a lot of insight and awareness maybe about certain parts of your life, but it didn't bring about the active change in terms of like changing your symptoms around disordered eating. Oh yeah, absolutely. I would, one of the things that I remember saying to, I think the third psychologist or third, yeah, the third psychologist that I went to see well I I, was quite rude of me I actually started to get quite impatient with being in therapy and someone telling me why I was experiencing the things that I was experiencing without giving me any insight into how I can make it stop I remember saying to one psychologist okay yeah I understand why I am the way that I am but how do I feel different how do I how do I make myself feel different? Because it felt like I was just white knuckling it through, trying to 
act in a way that I knew was the right way to act, but at the time was com in complete contradiction to how I was feeling on the inside. So mm -hmm. I was always asking, you know, like, okay, I get it. We've got the insight. We've been over this a thousand times, but what do I do to change now? And that was around the time when they'd usually say, oh, well, that's all the time we have for this week. See you next week. <laughs> Yeah, they sure. So it sounds very frustrating, doesn't it? Because I think, you know, not to devalue therapy, like gaining that insight and awareness can be a really important part of the process. But Of course, absolutely. Yeah, but with, with yeah. healing and eating disorder, you definitely need those tools and strategies and to yes. understand the, the impact of starvation or starvation and binging, etc., on the body so you can start to interrupt those cycles and change your physiology as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would not want anyone to think that I'm talking down on therapy, like across the board. I've been to a therapist to speak about other things and other, other subjects, other things. And insight was exactly what I needed in those areas. And it was great. So, yeah, what you just said, like the difference between, you know, talking therapy, addressing other things versus disordered eating or an eating disorder yeah there's there's a different different approach required there yeah I'm not sure I'm kind of sure I'm going off a bit of a tangent but That's I, fine. Just wondered, <laughs> I just wondered what well, do you think I'm just curious to know that cause obviously doing that insight and awareness work at the time perhaps it was quite frustrating it wasn't bringing about the active change but do you think then like by the time you got to later do the more kind of skills tools kind of approach do you think because you'd done the deeper work did it help you then to be able to implement the more kind of in the present tools do you see what I mean yeah absolutely again definitely not saying there's anything wrong with talking therapy like both mm. absolutely you know necessary we can't just say you know here's an action step go out and do that you know without any any understanding or or clarification as to why we might be doing that or anything like that, you know, so of course, yeah, I hope I haven't given the impression that those kind of things aren't necessary. Absolutely, I believe that they are. So I'm not sure which, it was the chicken before the egg thing for me, I guess. I'm not sure which thing really, I guess I'll, I'll never know if it was done the other way around for me, if it would have been better because my experience is of gaining a lot of insight and, you know, going very deep into, you know, my own history and all that kind of stuff, probably too deep, like maybe more than, than I needed to. And then connecting the dots with something else. The breakthrough moment really came with uniting those two things because I was working with someone who was helping me with dealing with stage fright because I was working as a professional guitarist at the time and I was suffering with incredible stage fright to the point where my hands would shake and everything. It was just awful. And one day I realized that what I was being taught and coached through in order to deal with stage fright was the body side of dealing with urges and anxiety and discomfort surrounding food that I didn't get out of other kinds of therapy. So I just took what I was internalizing and, and learning and practicing with dealing with stage fright and put it into my relationship with food. And, and that was kind of the missing piece in a lot of ways. Mm, 
Sure. Well, no, thanks so much for sharing that. And I think it just shows how all our journeys are so unique, aren't they? And yeah. there is, there's not one size fits all or one right way to recover. And mm. yeah, it sounds like for you, you know, lots of different aspects were helpful, but it sounds like just in reflection and looking back, um, perhaps if you knew what you know now, it would have been nice to have some of more of those tools and strategies earlier on. Um, well, yeah, that's the, always the big, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's that, that classic thing, isn't it? Like, oh, I wish I knew everything that I knew right now, but 10 years ago, <laughs> if only it could work that way, right? But yeah. I, I'm really grateful that it did come together to paint a full picture of recovery for me in the end. Yeah, no, it's great to hear. So, Marcus, could you tell us a little bit more then about your story and like how you came to sort of develop an eating disorder, disordered eating and sort of, you know, a bit how that sort of progressed? Yeah, it started when I was in high school. I got into school sport, competing with guys that were, you know, a year older than me at the time. And at the age of about 13 or 14, sometimes a year's difference in development can be quite dramatic. So I wasn't particularly gifted athletically or anything like that for my age. But I was thrown into the mix with guys who were, you know, maybe a year older than me and just born athletes. So in that really common, what would we call it, just the really common way that that young guys associate a lot of their self-worth with what they can do physically and what they look like physically and, and you know, what they can achieve through sport and everything like that. It's a very physical kind of environment. I came to the conclusion that if I was going to be of any value as a person, I had to be exceptionally athletic. I had to be exceptionally strong and I had to look like the guys that I was seeing in movies. So what started out as me just wanting to do better at school sport quickly escalated into getting body composition tests at like way too young and lifting weights in my garage in Australia in summer, like it was 40 degrees in there. It was crazy. And I'd be in there after school lifting weights. I'd be getting up at 5.45 in the morning to go for a run or go to the gym, a separate gym before school. I'd be doing school sport at school. And no matter what I did, I just wasn't getting the results that I was seeing in other people's transformations. I wasn't getting that the body that I was seeing on the magazines. And I had no one to guide me through that process. I had no one to tell me that, you know, most of these people are using steroids and Mm. most of these people are using performance enhancing drugs. I think one guy at the gym that I went to at the time tried to kind of point me in the right direction, but he pointed me from maybe looking at the Mr. Olympia kind of physique to looking at magazines like men's health magazine and all that kind of stuff but you know we know now that a lot of the sports models that don't look like the incredible hulk are still using performance enhancing drugs and i was just chasing those results and was really really intense about it just kept escalating the amount of exercise that i was doing kept making my diet stricter and stricter to the point where i was counting out the number of raw almonds in my lunchbox and, you know, drinking black coffee at school and, you know, no carbohydrate and all that kind of stuff, Mm. which that pattern 
eventually broke when, again, a book by another well-renowned sports model started talking about the concept of the cheat day. So, you know, to have one day a week where you can like eat whatever you want. And I took that very literally and went, oh my goodness, this is the opportunity that I've been waiting for because <laughs> I've just been depriving myself of everything that was like just anything that tasted good for so long. So I s- started implementing this cheat day thing, which in hindsight, I know now just turned what I was experiencing into binge eating disorder where I would just wait for the weekend and and eat crazy amounts of food and then restrict really heavily during the week. So I was essentially training myself into a binge eating disorder. And then when I still didn't get any closer to those physiques I was looking at, I thought I've got to get these weekends under control. And there, when I tried to stop them, when I tried to stop those binges on the weekends, I couldn't stop. So from there I started purging, which obviously led to a number of years struggling with bulimia. And once I'd started down that path and once that that rhythm had happened and really kind of set itself in motion, it was just crazy hard to stop. Even when I thought to myself, you you know what, this is ridiculous. I don't want to do this anymore. I know this isn't working. I need to stop this. I'd be faced with just this urge and this push to just continue the pattern. And I, it took me years to figure out why and really understand why and, and balance my training and balance my nutrition and fix my relationship with food and all this kind of stuff. But essentially that's how it escalated over the course of, of many years, like during my teenage years. But then once it was there, once it's almost like once that software was installed, I just really struggled to get rid of it. And that kind of led to my twenties where I was, you know, working as a a touring guitarist and and personal trainer and everything like that. And was battling this the whole time and trying to fix it. And I I didn't really find answers until my late thirties. But I know really hearing your story, I really sort of feel the sense of isolation you must've felt with all of that because I guess you well you like you tried a bit of therapy and not got anywhere and I guess you were dealing with this very much on your own yeah very much it was something that I just took for granted though because again part of that culture of being a guy is we're not really encouraged to talk about a lot like now I guess we are people are starting to speak up and and say that you know, men's mental health is a problem and and we need to actually start addressing it. But even still, just saying that and saying that we need to address it and saying that it's okay to talk, there's a big difference between saying that and everybody or the male population actually feeling like they can. So Mm. it's going to be a process, but definitely when I was struggling with these things, I didn't know anybody else who understood I tried to go to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting at one point and I felt so I felt so out of place mm-hmm. when I went there. You know, people were nice, like it wasn't like there was anything wrong, but I just I walked in there and went, Oh, these people are probably looking at me thinking that, you know, why the hell is he here? 
And I, I thought, oh, I can't be here. I had to leave. But yeah, it was definitely something that I felt pretty isolated with. Mm. And once you sort of recognised in a way, you know, once you became much more aware, you're in this unhelpful cycle. But, you know, as I know as well, myself, having suffered from bulimia, once, once you're in the cycle, it's very tricky, isn't it, to kind of exit it. But were you still sort of in between sort of binging and purging? Were you still quite restrictive and sort of over-exercising in the sort of interim periods between the binges and purges? Yes, I was. It was not like my bulimia was absolutely consistent for 15 years. I'd go through phases where it, it got bad. And then for a few weeks, I might pull myself out of it a little bit and my binge episodes on the weekend would become you know the volume on those would be turned down just a little bit but it would I would still eat to the point of discomfort and go oh why did I do that but I wouldn't purge afterwards and I would do my best to just work through it but then something would happen I would you know head back into the, the zone of bulimia but definitely Binge eating disorder for me lasted longer than bulimia. I think there was a while where I can say that bulimia was no longer a problem, but binge eating disorder just stayed. And Mm. my weight fluctuated a lot in that time and everything like that. And it was just, yeah. Yeah, no, it's tough, isn't it? And I think it's not unusual for bulimia to transition into binge eating disorder. But I Mm. sometimes think even maybe that's almost like a stepping stone along the recovery road, although it doesn't feel like it when you're in it. That's right. Yeah, it's it's something that it's really interesting that you should say it that way. I've not really thought of it in that way, thought of, you know, that transition to binge eating disorder as a step in the right direction from bulimia. So, yeah, of course, if someone manages to stop purging, then, of course, that's a great step. And then it's just a matter of, you know, focusing on on the relationship with food from there without the added pressure of the purge, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I think when there's the option of purging, Binges can then be almost, there's no limit to them, is there? Whereas you have, I mean, I know personally for myself, when I I was was eliminated purging, then it definitely reduced the size of the binges. I mean, I don't know if that was true for you. Oh, I'm not sure if it did because that mentality of, you know, eat big and get muscular and all that kind of stuff, all that really Mm. toxic masculine can I swear? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say bullshit. <laughs> you know, not that there's anything wrong with, with, you know, wanting to lift weights and do all that kind of stuff. Like I still do that now, but I just do it from a constructive perspective. But yeah, I trained myself to be able to eat a phenomenal amount of food. I just recently spoke with an old client of mine. We, you know, we worked together in early, you know, early this year he came and did a podcast episode on my channel and was talking about, you know, our work through his recovery. And part of the issue with him and part of the challenge that he was experiencing was just being able to eat a phenomenal amount of food. 
before he would even start to feel uncomfortable or, or like he was full or anything like that at all. So, yeah, that's definitely a thing. I know some people, I know myself, I was one of those people who just, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it, from practicing binge eating from so long, my mm. tolerance for really large amounts of food had had crept up to the point where when I stopped purging, eating that volume of food was definitely a problem. Yeah, sure. So what really did help you to break out of the sort of cycle of bulimia? You know, what were the really sort of specific things that kind of helped you to sort of, you know, really heal from this? The first thing was realizing that willpower and discipline had not as much to do with it as I first thought. I would often think to myself, right, I'm going to come up with this perfect plan and, you know, time block my week and map out all my meals and I'm going to stick to that plan. Absolutely. I'm just going to willpower and organize my way out of this process, out of this situation. And that just didn't work. I had to realize I had to try that a number of times and see that it didn't work for me to finally go, okay, that's definitely not the answer. And then the big step in the, the right direction, I guess, was realizing that the same skill set that I'd been practicing for years to deal with high pressure shows and performing and stage fright and everything like that was a very similar skill set to the one that I could use to heal my relationship with food. Mm. Can you say a bit more about you know, some of those tools that you were using? Sure. So bringing my attention down into my body rather than up in my head was, you know, in short, of course, that, that process, you know, you could do an entire workshop on that, you know, people run entire courses on that. But in a nutshell, when I was getting ready for a show, like there were, there were times when, you know, in my mid-20s, I went from playing relatively small shows to getting, you know, some big opportunities and just being catapulted onto really big stages really quickly when I was not really ready for it. But it was that situation of, right, I either take this opportunity and do it or I chicken out and maybe never get this opportunity again. So I would find myself standing next to, you know, stages like Wembley Arena, just Mm. like, sorry, but shitting myself. (laughs) I'd be like shaking and everything. And every part of my mind was was telling me, you're going to blow it. You're going to screw this up real bad. There are 12,500 people out there and you're going to humiliate yourself in front of them. You're screwed. And so, you know, that was the mental process. Mm -hmm. So what I was taught was to bring myself out of my thoughts and into my body you know, into the sensations of of breathing and tactile, like kinesthetic sensations, like the feeling of the texture of my jeans and the feeling of the breath in my body and the, you know, the feeling of my guitar in one hand and, and, you know, sounds and smells and everything and bringing myself into my senses and into my body Mm -hmm. in a way that allowed me to put space in between my present moment existence and what I really needed to do in that moment and all those fictional thoughts that I was experiencing. So that 
being able to do that really allowed me to step into a different relationship with food when I felt those urges and felt those pulls towards certain kinds of foods or certain kinds of behaviors in regards to food. When I was standing side stage about to do something, there was nothing that I couldn't exactly go, oh, no, screw it. I can't do this anymore and walk away because, you know, Mm. the show must go on, all that kind of stuff. So I took that into my approach to food. You know, if binge eating wasn't something that I could, if it was just, no, I'm just not going to do that, how to actually deal with those urges and feelings surrounding food without them turning into thoughts that then exacerbate the anxiety. That was kind of the process that I started to get into and, and take into my relationship with food. Does that make any sense? (laughs) Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like so helpful actually that, you know, that that input that you'd had with managing the stage fright, that you were able to kind of sort of, you know, draw that across and then really use it in being much more present and mindful in understanding your relationship with food. And like, it's almost like having that kind of window, isn't it, between for you, it sounds like you were so in it and, you know, all these anxious thoughts and you're kind of on autopilot, but actually coming back into your body, it slowed everything down and you had to kind of be more grounded. And then, and then I guess as well, you just put some space, didn't I guess, to perhaps be able to react differently to the old ways. Yeah. I think the way that I was reacting to urges to binge eat was exacerbating so much of my anxiety that it's such a subtle thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the way that I was approaching my thoughts and, and feelings about food for so many years, I didn't realize that I was just making it worse. Like the, the way that I was approaching those things in trying mm. to fight those things in trying to use willpower and trying to use discipline and all that. Yeah, it's a really funny thing to reflect on. Mm. And did you find when you were sort of doing that work of coming back much more into your body, were you starting as well to nourish yourself better, sort of to eat more regularly and to sort of really break out of those cycles of restriction as well, sort of alongside working on the emotional side of the illness, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. For not one second would I want anyone listening to this to think that, oh, you know, if you learn how to handle stage fright, that's just the key to recovery, like immediately. Like it was definitely a cornerstone for Mm. me in that that whole mindset thing and bottom-up approach, you know, bringing yourself into the body. And that was one part of it. It It was a very important part, but there were still so many other things that, had to come to light for me. And one of them was my relationship with body image and what I expected of myself on a physiological level and from an aesthetic level and, you know, really, really getting a better, more educated perspective on performance when it comes to the gym and, you know, again, like I said, what, what we can expect of ourselves and how to feed ourselves for the long game. Cause so many of the things that I was being 
shown and that I was buying into over the years were the, you know, get ripped in 12 weeks type approaches and, you know, approaches to nutrition that just were not sustainable, like not even a little bit sustainable. Just the fitness industry's attempt to sell more shit by oversimplifying how to get a certain result and by telling every, everyone that it can be done really fast, you know, because that's what sells. And I had to, I had to come to terms with the fact that a lot of the stuff that I'd been told from the commercial fitness industry had been a lie. Mm. I imagine that was probably really hard to take on board because it's almost like, you know, you're following this kind of belief system, this sort of fitness world and, you know, I guess with the best will in the world, in a way, we're so inundated with all of that. I guess it felt like you were doing the right thing, that you were trying to be healthy and to pursue goals and suddenly to look at all of that in a different way. It must have been quite challenging for your whole identity and world. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. You're you're right, 100%. It, there was a long time where I thought what I was doing was healthy then there was a period of time where I realized that what I was doing definitely wasn't healthy, but I thought it was still necessary to look the way that I wanted to look. So there were definitely a few hurdles to jump over there for sure. And then once I made peace with all those things, it was like I got to experience this incredible sense of freedom and relief and just, ah, like this huge weight lifted off your shoulders. But then because I still work in the fitness industry, then I turned around and saw all the people that I work with and all the, the clients that still come to me still extremely confused about what results they can expect from what kind of work and in how long. So I've had to turn around and go, oh, no, now I have to explain to everyone else <laughs> the things that that I had to come to terms with. And at times it's, because there is just so much, let's call it commercial fitness industry propaganda out there, mm. it's a really hard, hard thing to fight because for every piece of information or content that you put out there that's, you know, based on actual facts, there's a thousand and one other things that, that are really attention grabbing that are just full of misleading crap. Mm. yeah it's so challenging isn't it and I think you know for as long as as a culture where we sort of place so much value on how our bodies look <laughs> again yeah. it's almost like people don't care about the truth almost do they you know because of I mean as human beings we're so seduced by wanting to you know we kind of want to believe in a way that if we do this 12-week plan or if we follow this advice by this celeb, actually, we're going to achieve those results. It's very, very seductive, isn't it? And yeah, you can't blame people in a way for being so pulled down that road. And when it is so still highly and wrongly valued in our culture. Absolutely. And, you know, I went down that road for years, for two mm, decades, yeah. almost, you know, <laughs> like, so it's just the only thing that and I wish I could say something different here, but I changed because I got to a point where I had no choice. I really wish that I could say that I investigated a few things very intelligently 
and came to the conclusion that that wasn't the best way. So I decided to become enlightened. I really wish that that was the case. (laughs) Harriet, I really wish that that was the case. But no, I believed all that propaganda and Mm. walked that road until there was no road left to walk. Like I went down there for so long that investigated every option, overturned every stone and eventually came to the the conclusion that, yep, I'm actually really miserable and I think these guys are lying. And it took me so long, so long. Mm. But, you know, we're here now. And I hope to save other people some of the time that maybe I wish that I could get back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think you're not alone. And I think it's just so helpful that you're sharing your story, Marcus. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Can we just touch briefly, actually, on as well the use of performance-enhancing drugs and steroids and fitness? Like, I'm sure, again, you could like <laughs> probably talk a lot on that. But can you just give us a bit of an insight into that? Because I guess it's something I don't know an awful lot about, but obviously it's massive in the fitness industry and affecting mm. a lot of people. Yeah, so the most helpful piece of knowledge that you can have as far as that's concerned is that you would be amazed how many people either, you know, just gym junkies, just people who are at the gym or, you know, public figures, you'd be amazed how many of them are actually using some kind of performance enhancing drug. Because often we get the impression that it's only those giant hulking, like Mr. Universe type guys that use steroids, like, you know, the the huge bodybuilders, like we look at those guys and think, yeah, they're definitely using steroids. But there are so many people who don't look anywhere near that size. They just look like they're in really, really good shape, but they're using drugs. They're using drugs to get there. So this whole black and white thing of someone who's using performance enhancing drugs is going to be, you know, steroids, whatever is going to be this giant who looks like the incredible Hulk. It's not true. There's an entire spectrum of different drugs that people are using to increase their capacity for recovery from training so that they can train more often. There are different drugs out there that make our bodies store less body fat, can make us lose fat more easily. There's obviously things like steroids and different variants that can increase muscle size. And there are just so many things that can give people the kind of competitive edge that takes someone from looking like, you know, a normal person who's in good shape into that kind of looking like a bit of a superhero. Mm. And it's so common now that our perception of what someone who's in good shape is has been skewed by all these people using drugs. So, you know, we might get someone, I know a lot of, I know quite a few like natural bodybuilders. So bodybuilders who actually get drug tested so that they they can't take anything. You know, a large number of those guys still find ways to get around it. But, But I know some guys who, you know, they genuinely they don't take anything. You know, these are guys who, guys and girls actually, who worked for decades to look the way they do. And when they just, when they chuck a t-shirt on, 
you know, they don't look like a superhero. Like they don't look like they're anything, you know, they're not, their proportions are still like a normal person and they just look like they're in good shape. But people would look at them and go, oh, you know, they're, you know, they're not in super good shape. But, you know, that's the reality of, for some people, like that's the reality of what fitness looks like without drugs. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're just so accustomed to seeing the results of performance enhancing drugs that, that our perception of what being in good shape looks like has been completely skewed. Well, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? And I guess it just shows again the pressures <laughs> that, you know, we face as a society with, you know, so many people will be looking at, you know, their role models, these kind of superheroes or pictures on social media and mm. aspiring for a physique like that and not realizing everything that's going on in the background yeah for sure and you know there are people who do get you know who do look a certain way like naturally but i can promise you the degree of consistency and work and dedication that goes into certain physiques that are achieved naturally they're literally a lifestyle so you know we're not only a little bit in the dark as far as how many people are using performance enhancing drugs, but also we're in the dark as far as just how much work some people do put into simply looking a certain way. Like it is their full-time job. And yet we're shown these people on an Instagram post or the cover of a magazine or an email or something like that, along with some kind of tagline that promises that you can look like that in 12 weeks if you do this diet or if you do this training program or if you buy this app. And we're we're just being misled. That, of course, doesn't mean... It's a difficult balance because I don't want to discourage people from, you know, wanting to be in good shape because, you know, that's, that's absolutely fine. But at the same time, we need to be really clear on what that actually means. And right now with, with everything that's going on, it's very difficult to have clarity on that. No, very true. So Marcus, how do you today really stay in this place of being in a good place of mentally and physically, you know, what are some of the, strategies or tools that you kind of implement as part of your life to keep you from being seduced back down that road good question I have to be mindful like every day it's you know especially being in the fitness industry still it's very easy for me to walk into a gym and look around and start comparing myself so that would be like the first thing to really be mindful of like there is no joy to be found in comparing yourself to anyone else your journey is going to be 100% your own and the more you can really embrace that and see it as a positive thing the more you're going to get out of it so that's something that I definitely take on myself I see other people doing different training splits and being in the gym for you know four or five days a week and all that kind of stuff that I know that for me right now, like I'm balancing a business, I'm sorting out a lot of a lot of things. I don't want to be living in the gym and making my whole life about looking a certain way. So I know that for me, weight training 
three days a week and then doing like stretching and meditation and all that kind of stuff on the other days. I know that's a balance that works for me. And I have to be mindful that I know that right now in this time in my life, that balance works for me. And if I feel tempted to train more or neglect the things that I know are good for me in favor of doing something to maybe look more like someone else, I know that that thought and that urge probably isn't coming from a very good place. So yeah, really, really eliminating comparison or just being mindful of comparison and making it your own journey, your own informed journey. I think that's probably the best thing that I know that, that works for me and, and what I can recommend as a place to start for other people. Oh, no, I think really helpful to hear that. And it sounds as well like you've kind of got those blinkers on to the comparisons a bit now, haven't you? And you're in your own lane. And it sounds as well, Marcus, as though you're very kind of rooted as well in the bigger picture of your values and what's important and realizing, you know, you could choose to train a lot more or spend more hours in the gym, but kind of realizing that's probably not going to lead you um, to be in line with your values and your kind of broader goals for you know, the wider picture of your life. Yeah, absolutely. It actually does remind me of one of the genuinely brilliant things that a therapist said to me probably about a decade ago now that at the time I didn't understand. I wasn't ready for it. I, I didn't believe him. I was, you know, another, like I was talking about my anxiety surrounding hair loss, you know, hair loss, as far as men, like another body image thing, I could unpack that for days, but I'll just keep it simple and say that that's what I was speaking to him about at the time. And he said to me, when you're a bit older, you'll realize that you've got more to contribute to the world than just your appearance. And I was like, yeah, but I still want to look a certain way. And he just kind of left it alone. Like he could tell mm. that I didn't, he could tell that I didn't get it at the time. So he just kind of left it. But what you said about expanding values and really knowing what you're about, at a certain point, you realize what's important and what you can bring to the world, you know, what makes you happy and, and how you can make other people happy in like a really nice healthy way not like a codependent way but like mm. what you can contribute to the world and you know that is just so much more than whether or not your one body fat percentage over another there's still so much that can be enjoyed and so much that can be done with food and and training when you let go of those things and and realize that you know my dog brings me way more joy than deadlifting does. You know, my, my, my girlfriend makes me laugh way more than doing bicep girls, you know, like, so, you know, there are just different priorities over time. Yeah, no, very true. So Marcus, where can people find you? And could you also mention your podcast? I think I'm sure people would be interested to have a listen. Sure. Thank you. My Instagram is mkainecoaching, just at mkainecoaching. That's M-K-A-I-N coaching. And the podcast is the mkain coaching podcast. Yeah. Just remember to spell Kane, K-A-I-N. I know there are a bunch of different ways to spell it, but that's where to find me, the mkain coaching podcast or mkain coaching on Instagram. 
Okay, wonderful. Well, I'll put those details in the show notes, Marcus. I'm sure a lot of people will be wanting to like listen in and, you know, maybe get in touch on Instagram. Great. Thank you so much. I'd love to chat to anyone who has any questions or who wants to chat a bit more. Okay. Well, Marcus, I'd just like to really thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you sharing your story and for, you know, just being very open and vulnerable and for sharing some of the things that have really helped you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Harriet. Thanks. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. And do go and check out all of Marcus's details and his podcast in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would love it if you would follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm -hmm.